What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to Nightmare Success In and Out Podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares to set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys I was in Leavenworth with. We're going to be talking about life before prison, life in prison, and life out of prison. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that will help you knock down some of the prisons you've built up in your own mind. Folks, today my guest is Paul Hartfield. Paul, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thank you. So um, I was going to say Paul has a book, and for those watching on YouTube, it's called For Such a Time as This. And I believe, Paul, just did it just come out? Uh, it's been out about a year, okay. maybe a little off, year and a half, something like that. Okay, so it's fairly new. Fairly new, yeah. Okay. Well, I, you know, Paul, one of the things I remember about you is, is you know, we were lucky enough to have – our family come to see us and I got to see your family and you got to see my family in the visiting room. And, you know, the other thing that really sticks in my mind is, is that you were a good singer. And I remember particularly the one Easter and it was really unusual because they actually allowed the inmates uh, to invite their family and walk through the hallway into the gymnasium, which was really, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but for us who were actually inmates, for our families to enter the area that we were living uh, was unusual. I mean, it was a real eye-opener for my family to be able to walk down that hallway. They couldn't see down where, the, you know, a, the A and B and D and, or C and D uh, dorms, but uh, it was still a, an experience. And that day, uh, and my family was there, and it was an Easter service, and you and your son got the opportunity to be up and entertained us uh, with your singing. It was fantastic. Well, thank you. Uh, that was a, an interesting time. In fact, that was the first time, and I was, I was told the first time in 16 years they've allowed uh, inmates' families to enter. Uh, the uh, gymnasium there to have a service. They used to do it, I understand, years and years and years ago sometimes, but that was the first time in over 15 years. Uh, it was put together by myself and a couple of inmates who we rallied the warden to try and do that. We thought it was good, and the uh, chaplain got behind it, and pretty soon it became a reality. And it was really something. When something like that happens in prison, it's a big deal because uh, it's hard to get anything accomplished like that in prison. I mean, it's, it's not something you go and say, Hey, what about this? This is a good idea, right? <laughs> uh, absolutely. We had to submit a number of written uh, requests. We had to meet. Uh, we actually had to visit with the warden cause he didn't want any trouble, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, you're right. It takes a long time to get something like that accomplished. Yeah. And I remember when we were all getting ready to go into the gymnasium, there was a lady out there, and I can't remember what her name was, but she was trying to, you know, it was it, the wind was blowing that day. It was it was April, and it, some days can be warmer than others. That one happened to be a little colder, and and we were all kind of huddled up, getting ready to go in there. And she was trying to break up all the families. You can't touch, you can't can't hug, can't do. I was like, oh my gosh, we're we're right, at I, Easter I here. Yeah, yeah, I do recall that. Yeah, yeah. So, Paul, take us back a little bit. Uh, where did you grow up, your family, siblings? What, what was Paul doing back at a young age? Well, 
I was born and grew up in Texas. Okay. Uh, grew up in the eastern part of Texas, a little north of Houston. And uh, I never left the state until I was 18 years old. So uh, it was a, a different uh, upbringing for me than maybe a lot of people. Uh, I uh, loved music, became a professional musician. And for 26 years, I was a, a professional singer of symphonic opera and oratorio pieces. Uh, and so it was, uh, you know, it was a different type of life. But what happened was I really, really look back on those days as wonderful days that growing up in the South. Uh, it's a little simpler than yeah. what it is today. <laughs> yeah. Well, usually and, uh, they don't let those Texans leave. Once you're there, no. you, you can't cross <laughs> the true, borders. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. But uh, I did uh, get away. And uh, when I met my wife, when I went to graduate school in Kansas City, I met my wife-to-be, and uh, when we got married, we thought the Midwest was a really wonderful place to raise a family, and so we just stayed in the Midwest. So did your mom and dad, uh, you had brothers and sisters? I do. I have two brothers and one sister. Okay, and did they stay in Texas and you moved to the Midwest, or how did that work? They, they have never left the state either. <laughs> <laughs> they, all three of them still live there, and they just they, they've never left the state. That's great. That's great. So when you were, uh, did you tour when you were doing this with the uh, music? I did. I did. I, I did a lot of things around the U.S. Most of my stuff was in Europe and abroad. Uh, you know, I was much younger then, so uh, I did a lot of traveling. In fact, when I retired from that, I retired because I had still had young children at home and I was getting tired of being away from them for so long. Uh, so it was more or less a tour. It's more or less uh, uh, kind of like an independent contractor. Yeah. Something along those lines. So your kids, uh, when I guess, you, did the kids' uh, wife, did they travel with you, or how did that work when you do that type of stuff on the road? Occasionally, I, I, we would, we would uh, travel together. I remember when I, my first child was born, my daughter, Maria, I was so, uh, I was making my European debut in Paris, France, and I was so torn up about being away from them because it was a three-month-long contract. And uh, so I flew them over, and they spent a month with me, uh, which was great because I was really homesick. difficult to be away from your family. Yeah, homesick and yeah. Uh, difficult to be away from them at that time period. But, you know, I uh, later on, my wife would travel. Uh, we went to Hong Kong together. We went to uh, Barcelona, Spain together. Uh, so we, I took her as much as I could, but we had three children, and, and they were a handful. Well, and and you, I mean, in, in a job like that, I mean, the the perk benefit with it, you got to see the world. I did. I, you know, a lot of people wait till they retire, they go to see the world. Well, I saw all the world by the time I was thirty, <laughs> and uh, so there's, uh, you know, I think I have I've never been to Australia, but I've been almost everywhere else: Africa, Europe, uh, the Far East, uh, the Middle East, everywhere you can imagine. What was your favorite? Well, a lot of people ask me that, and I'd have to say my favorite place to go still to this day was uh, Cape Town, South Africa. Wow, okay. I thought it was one of the great universal cities that we never hear about because it's just so far away. Right. Uh, but it was a wonderful experience. You know, it had mountains on one side and an ocean on the other, so it was just great experience. So, Paul, when you retired out of that music world, what did you do after that? What was your business world? Well, I was uh, 
I was looking for something I could do. I didn't have many skills other than music. But if you remember in the uh, early 2000s, uh, real estate was, was a hot, hot market. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I uh, began to uh, look into that, and I started a company where we purchased single-family homes, rehabilitated them, then resold them. Okay. And uh, it really took off. I was shocked because I didn't know that much. But as I learned and went through this, you learn a lot. And uh, so by the time we got to 2006, we had about 350 uh, single-family homes that we owned. Wow. That sounds like a lot. It was a lot. Trial by fire. I mean, you must have figured it out while you were walking through it. Well, I didn't figure out everything, as you already know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes that can happen, though. I mean, I, you know, I always say, and I was giving a speech the other day to a college group, and I said, you know, one of the things about growing you know, we went from three states to 22 states is that when things are really good, you can kind of take your eye off the ball and get lazy and hit a blind spot. And, uh, you know, that's when things surprise you and then you've got to handle things as they come at you. And sometimes it feels like an avalanche. I think that is probably so very true. So very true. You get, you get successful and you begin to get a little lapidaceful about what you're doing and uh, anything can happen. Yeah. So tell me what what did happen, Paul? How did it? Because you know, it's for those who don't know Paul, he he's a very nice man, and and he's a, a kind of a, a gentle soul. So it's it's always interesting with all these different stories how people end up where they end up. Uh, so Paul, where where did it start, and how did the how did the nightmare begin for you? Well, we were as I said, we were doing really quite well with the real estate company. We were successful enough that we even opened up our own. Uh, mortgage company at the same okay. time. So we were buying, selling, and so forth. And then about 2007, as you know, we began to have difficulties because the real estate market or real estate bubble burst, shall we say, and everyone was beginning to struggle. We were no different. We began to have uh, problems with cash flow. Uh, we began to struggle with a, a number of uh, properties. Nothing would sell. So we had to go into a uh, defensive mode of renting or leasing. Uh, and that was always difficult because when your renter or leaser leaves, you really have to go back in and redo it again. Right. So you're spending money there. So at about 2007, it was coming down fast. And our, our multi-million dollar company dwindled to less than $100,000 in, in about three to four weeks. Wow. And uh, so we were struggling. Uh, we decided we just could not go so we closed the company uh shortly after that i had a heart attack in april of 2008 uh it was probably more stress related than that's what was i was going to say that was probably a stress heart attack yeah it was it was it was horrible i mean and i was uh, arriving at church one day and i opened the door to my car and it was just a, a strange feeling in my chest and thank goodness there was a good friend of mine drove up at the same time and he would not let me go in the church unless we went and had it checked out it was a good thing because it was uh it, it required that uh, I have a number of stents put in. Uh, so that was kind of going that way. And, uh, you know, you probably understand this, Brent. When that happens to you and your business falls apart, you become very depressed and very uh, uh, just your anxiety level is very high. You're very just you can't really deal with things very well. Yep. Uh, and so I was I was struggling uh, very much so. But 
you know, after a, a while, you get past that, and even though everything has failed, you've just got nothing that works or anything like that. You feel like things are, are doing well. And then one Thursday morning, uh, no, I'm sorry, one Tuesday morning, at about 9 o'clock, the doorbell rang, and I went down and answered it. And a very lovely lady and a gentleman introduced themselves as agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Mm. And uh, I... Uh, I said, how may I help you? And they said, well, we'd like to see some of the records of your company that failed. We uh, have some things that are not quite exactly the way we feel like they should be. I naively <laughs> thought, well, okay, that's no problem. I have nothing to hide. So I asked them to allow me to finish getting dressed and I would meet them at my office and we could go through anything I want to. And that was the beginning of sorrows, as mm. you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, did you call After an attorney they, at the time, Paul, or did you just go let him in? I just let him in because I, you know, I was I was naive at the time. Yeah. I'd never been in trouble, so I thought, yeah, I got nothing to yeah. hide. We Show them what they want to see, right? That's what I thought. Yeah, let them see what they want to see. Well, uh, I should have known that they don't start looking at you unless they're looking for something to find fault in you, and I right. didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, then they come back and said, "Well, we need to see things." And by that time, I talked to some people and I asked them if it was okay if I have my attorney present. They didn't like that, of course, and uh, said that they would just subpoena the rest of them, which they did, just subpoena the rest of the records. So, you know, as, as you are probably aware of talk with others, the difficult time of, of going to prison is not when you get to prison, but from when they indict you to the time you get to prison, yeah. which for me was a little over two years. Yeah, And so it was two of the worst years of my life. And so uh, the... Uh, one thing left to another, and uh, they prosecutor began to suggest. He says, "Well, I think you've committed some some act of bank fraud and, and money laundering." I had to ask him what money laundering was. I mean, you talk about being a real naive person. I wasn't even certain what that was. And when he described it to me, I said, "Well, we do deposit checks that we get into our account." And he says, "Well, that's all it takes." Uh, shortly after that. Uh, they come back and said, we're going to in, indict you, you know, for that. And, and of course, I, I hired attorneys and uh, I was prepared to go the distance because I didn't think I had done anything wrong. Now, after it was described to me what we did, which was everyday business use, by their definition, it was wrong. Right. And so I had to come to those terms, but I was prepared to go the distance with them. And uh, so they came to me with an offer and said, if you will say you did this. Uh, we will give you this, this, and this. And I said, I, I'm not comfortable with that. I think I would rather just take my chances in court. They said, well, if you go to court and lose, which 92% of them do lose, right. he said, you're going to get this, this, and this, which is considerably more. But I, I really felt strong about that. And uh, so we were prepared to go to court. And then they called me in one last time and they said, well, we need you to reconsider this and you need to take this. It's an open and shut case for us. And if you don't, we will destroy you when it's over with. And I said, well, I'm, I'm prepared for that chance. They said, well, if you do not take this last offer, we're going to give you says we will indict your wife. Mm. And at that point I felt like I could not take a chance. Uh, even though she was never involved in our business, she never knew anything about what was going on. I didn't want to take any chance of uh, bringing her into that type of situation. And Paul, that's such a strong uh, thing that they have in their playbook. And, oh. you know, and they, they use it. Well, you know, you, people say, well, how does 97% of the people that get indicted plea? Um, 
when they start stretching into family, um, a lot of times that's the folding mechanism. And, and I know so many people I've talked to that that's, that was one of the things that happened. Um, and that's a, that's a tough one because you, you have to struggle with what you're dealing with. And then once you know that somebody else is going to get entangled in it, you don't want that for their world. Yeah. Well, it, it just, it stopped me in my tracks. Yep. There's no question. And I, I said, well, I don't want to agree that I've committed the crime. I said, how about if I agree that I committed the crime of uh, conspiracy to commit? And they agreed with that. They said, that's fine with us as long as you take this. Uh, you know. So I had to go up and I had to stand before the judge and say, yes, I did this. Yes, I did that. And it was very difficult mm-hmm. because I had not done that. But I could not possibly take a chance of my wife getting drugged into something that who knows what they could turn it into. And, well, uh, you're, you're, well, Paul, speaking of your wife and kids in those two years, how, how did you guys get through that? I mean, I know that's, I, I went through that with my, my kids and wife. How, how did, how did the family survive? Well, uh, as I said earlier, Brandon, it's, it's really, you know, and, and you know, this, of course, the time between your diet and the time between you were actually right in prison, the most difficult time prison, simple and easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it was very difficult because I, I started going through my depression again. I couldn't hardly function. It's hard for me to get up. My wife was very concerned. Uh, we always had a very strong family, but I will say, even when this trouble happened, it solidified us even more. My two sons and my daughter became, uh, uh, great patriots that surround the flag, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were always there for, I told them that I was going to have to go away and that they, they had to take care of their mother some way and, and they stepped up. So that was great, but it was probably most agonizing time that I know in my 66 years. Yeah. How old were your kids I, at that point? Uh, well, two of them were, were out of the house, but okay. I still had Robert the singer mm-hmm. that you heard and yeah. he was still in high school. Okay, and they were good. I, I have to admit, I it was the most difficult thing for me to bring them into uh, the bedroom one day and explain to them this is what's going to happen and so forth. And and I thought I would uh, lose them forever, but instead they 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 stayed not only strong through it, but even stronger than than it was before. So mm-hmm. I'm very thankful and to feel very blessed about that. Yeah, no, that's that's. I think it's such a big deal to have your family muscle up together and get through something that's, uh, you know, a storm. And, and when you do that, I think it does make the ties even that much, the bonds that much stronger because, you know, when somebody goes to prison, the family goes to prison and you're, you're the whole family's dealing with it and dealing with whatever the, the outside is you're on the inside and you know, you feel emasculated because you can't help them on the outside. So it's, it's a struggle, but it's, you know, there's so much gratitude in the fact that you have a family. You know, Paul, you and I both know so many of the guys that we were with, we saw families disintegrate or, you know, somebody yeah. would show up with divorce papers. And, man, sure. what a dark place to get bad news. Sure. I saw that happen a number of times. You're right. Yeah. yeah it's, it's horrible. It's a very horrible thing. So, Paul, what was the what was the final deal that they gave you? Well, as I said, I had to agree to it, and uh, it was uh, 78 months, uh, 78 months sentence, uh, and uh, they wanted me to pay back like $2.4 million of uh, restitution, and 
I would agree that uh, I would sign an agreement saying that I would never uh, do anything in the real estate profession again. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I wasn't ever planning to. Uh, but, you know, what I thought would happen, as you know, uh, they they many times judge our sentence on our on the loss right. amount. And so what I was hoping we could do is when we got to the sentencing, we could debate or argue the loss and get it down. But they went with the prosecutor all the way across. So, uh, you know, I, I knew it was going to happen and I was prepared. They were very, very understanding to the point that they let me self-surrender. And I'm assuming you've talked about that on your podcast. Mm -hmm. and to me, that's a blessing because you're able to kind of prepare, get everything together before you, uh, before you leave to go. Yeah. And it's a weird time period when, you know, that time that you've actually pled to the time that you find in the mailbox where you're going to go. You've got time to think about that. And then you've got, you know, that day, that time that you have to stand in front of that gate. What was going through your mind? Well, I was, I was very down about it. It was, uh, I had to, my first assignment was uh, the federal prison camp in Duluth, Minnesota. And Sounds my wife, cold. We, oh, <laughs> it was because I had oh, to Texas go, boy. <laughs> yeah. I had to go on December 27th. Oh. And there were mountains and mountains of snow everywhere. My wife drove me. I, I told her I wanted to just take a bus and go there by myself. She would have no part of that. She said, no, I'm going to take you. And then she did. And it was hard for her to drop me off. I, I knew it would just destroy her, but, but she did. And I, and I went in and went through the procedure, you know, of being, uh, accepted, shall we say, or yeah, processed, processed yeah. into the prison system. And, uh, I, by the time I was done, it was nighttime and I walked out and uh, Minnesota, you're right, is a cold, cold place. I think that night it was like 12 below or something, uh, super cold. And I was very, very just thinking of ways that, you know, is there some way I could off myself or mm -hmm. something to get out of this misery? Cause it's just not something I'll be able to handle for mm -hmm. five or six years, whatever I have to go. And then I saw at the corner of my eyes, I stand outside a, a person walking up to me, an inmate. And I thought, well, this is my, this is my first test. I better be ready to defend myself here. And he introduced himself and he said, my name's Jeff. He said, uh, I was just headed over to the, uh, to the uh, chapel for the seven o'clock Bible study. Would you like to come? And it was like a burden had been lifted off of me. And I told him I, I would love to go. And so uh, that was my first night there. It really put me at ease. Yeah. when he did that. And I was so thankful that he came up and asked for me to do that. You know, Paul, I think that's one of the things that, you know, people see stuff on TV and, and, you know, the, the try to, you know, because it gets good ratings of violence and all those different things. But I think one of the things that surprised me just as you is, is that first night, that first day of how many different people want to help you. Uh, they know that you're, because they've done it themselves and they, they, they want to give you that, that helping hand to get you transitioned into this unfamiliar world. And man, do you appreciate that? Cause it, it, it does, it, it kind of just steadies you and your mind just takes a shifts gears down to the low gear. It calms down a little bit. Right, right. Yeah. No, you're, you're exactly right. It's uh, I, I think that was, that's the shock uh, that you receive. I think you go in there and you expect to see all these type of prison guys, like what you see on TV. And, and many of them, yeah. uh, you know, are, are just men that made a mistake and, and are trying to get home. I remember, I can still remember the day I met you for the first time. Yeah. And I thought when I went away, I said, 
well, this seems like a nice guy. What in the world is he doing here? <laughs> you know, and I, I said about so many. And, and yeah. so people asked me today, said, well, what are the people like in prison? And I said, well, there's two types of people. There's the kind you meet and you say, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. You, you should be at home or something. And then there's another kind you meet. You think, what are you doing here? You should be locked in a cage in the key for a <laughs> You know, there's, there's two, those yeah. two type of, of differences that you meet. But yeah. I, uh, I met so many people who were just, uh, just regular people and they made a mistake or, or maybe they didn't even make a mistake, but yet were, were, uh, convicted anyway. Right. And, uh, you know, they, they all had a, good attitude that they were going to try and get through and get home back to their family. So that, uh, being that far away, Paul did, uh, how did that work with you and your family? Because that's not a close, you know, I think you're supposed to be within 500 miles. Uh, that's right. But I was a little over 600 away. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was, it was difficult. I mean, uh, I only got to see my, my wife and my children about once every month and a half. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, uh, and, and it was also very expensive because you just couldn't drive up there and see me and drive back. It's a 10 hour drive up there, 10 hour drive back. So when they'd come for a weekend time, they did hotel food and stuff like that. They, they spent over a thousand dollars and it was expensive we left being a two income family now to one income. So, well, they had to watch their dollars, and uh, and every month and a half wasn't wasn't doing it for me. And that's when I got to the point after about a year. I, I said I, I've got to try and see if I can get closer to home. So I went to the warden, who was a very understanding man, and I said, "Look, I'm over 600 nautical miles from home. Uh, is there any possible way I could transfer just to get closer?" And he understood. You know, he was reluctant because because it's so cold there, nobody transfers in. Right. <laughs> You Everybody know, once you sit there, yeah. yeah. Once you sit sent there, you're usually there. Yeah. And he said, "Well, I'll look into it." And I, I guess it wasn't oh three, maybe four weeks after that, I get, I hear a call over the PA system for my name to go to the secretary's office. And when I went in, uh, they said your your transfer has been approved. And I asked where because they were saying it might be in Oklahoma, it might be in Indiana, just as long as you're within 500 miles. Mm -hmm. And they said, "Were you requested Leavenworth?" And, uh, and I, and the greatest part of it was they said, how would you like to go? Which shocked me. Cause I thought, do I have a choice? And they said, yes, we can give you a bus ticket and you can go there or you can have, if you're married, you can have your wife come and pick you up. And to me, that was a joy beyond compare. Oh my gosh. And, yeah. So she and, how, came, and how long had you been in about a year? Uh, I've been in there 14 months. Okay. Yeah, and they usually don't let you out uh, until about after 16 months. Mm -hmm. But uh, I got lucky, I guess. Uh, you know me, I was I never got in a lot of trouble or anything no. like that. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I uh, I was pretty, you know, pretty boring. And uh, the, I think the warden who he had heard me sing a couple times too, he, I think he kind of felt, well, we need to help this guy out. And I appreciate him doing that. So uh, my wife came and picked me up. We had 11 hours. <laughs> to get from Duluth to uh, Leavenworth, and uh, we had to, you know, we got to have a great meal. Our family, rest of our family, met us there. You remember that restaurant directly across from the uh, camp there? I sure we, do. Uh, that yeah. it was the little house from uh, across the street from the big house is what they That's had. On it. Side. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> they have a wonderful uh, steak dinner there, and so forth. And we don't get to eat steak too many times in the in the prison system. So my family and I, we met there at about oh five, uh, a little before five. We had a nice dinner together, and then she dropped me off in front of the uh, big house, and they processed me 
and uh, I stayed in the hole that night. And then uh, the counselor came and picked me up the next morning, take me over to the camp. So, Paul, what was, you know, going from prison to prison and then you're at Leavenworth. So the good part is, is that you're, you're right next to home. Um, the, I don't know what Duluth was like, but I know what Leavenworth was like. What was your opinion of everything getting into the system and getting processed through and being in the hole? And yeah. Well, you know, they, they were really very different. Uh, Duluth is a standalone camp. It does not have a larger house. It's not a satellite. Uh, it's it's uh, situated on at an air, old Air Force base. Uh, so you've got things in Duluth that you don't have there in Leavenworth because that's really a satellite camp and, and so forth. I mean, we had a, a, a full-size uh, chapel. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a full-size church, seated over 300 people. We had a, a big theater that you can go watch your movies in and, and so forth. I mean, it was just, uh, it was different. And it also, there were over 900 men when I was there. Mm. And then the transfer down to a place that had about 300 or mm-hmm. a little over 300 uh, was a lot different. And being a satellite camp was really different, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dormitories in Duluth were much better. But like I said, that was an old Air Force base. Right. Of course, it would be better and everything. Uh, I was particularly amazed when I got to Leavenworth, the, the dormitory system, we had an open dormitory. And then if you were really good, you could go down to a two-man. Yeah, they called that the suburbs. <laughs> yeah, so, so that was kind of interesting. Uh, but it was it was quite different. You know, the there seemed to be a lot more uh, of mine and your type of prisoner, the, the white-collar people in Duluth, than there was in uh, uh, Leavenworth. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think, what, what was – what was your job? I can't remember, Paul, what you did at Leavenworth. I remember you in the chapel and all that. Did... Uh, well, I worked for Unicor for a long time. That's right. That's right. Uh, but, it got, yeah, it got a little, I don't know, I needed to change or something like that. And so. Uh, well, for those who don't know what Unicor is, it's really kind of like a factory where they take uh, parts or they take things out of federal buildings and they take them apart and sell the parts off. And But it, it's almost kind of like an assembly line, factory line of prisoners and inmates doing the uh, disassembling things, right? Yeah. Verbatim. Yeah. Almost verbatim. That's exactly what it is. It's like a factory. Then after a while, my roommate, Ron Slovacek, mm-hmm. uh, asked me if I would come out and work with him. He says, they're looking for somebody. Would you work with me out at the fort? Mm-hmm. And I said, sure, why not? And so I went to the entomology department there at Fort Leavenworth. And uh, that was really a fun time, too. I think you worked at the golf course. I did, yeah. And so forth. And it was uh, it was good to kind of get away, wasn't it, sometimes? Well, it was a huge thing. And, and I think um – you know, for us that had been confined and being able to get community custody and actually get a taste of seeing people out and about and, and uh, feeling that. And then what was kind of strange to me was, is that, you know, we'd go over there and then at 3.30, we'd go back to prison. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a strange feeling, wasn't it? It was. But, but you really enjoyed that time being away from prison. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I never could quite figure out why there was, you know, there's, there were two types of prisoners. There were the ones that wanted to get a good job and keep themselves busy and not lose themselves, try to keep being themselves. And then there were the other guys that really just got lost in the system and, and really became more institutionalized into their bad, ugly routines and stayed in that 
fenced in area and, and never left. And, and there really just were two kinds. There were those that were trying to work and keep busy. And then there are other kinds that really slipped into a black hole. Yeah. There wasn't much of a middle class. It was either this or that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And you're absolutely right. And, uh, that's, that's, I think the biggest shock I had in prison, uh, was locating that type of, uh, philosophy between certain people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that, you know, there, there's ways, you know, there's strategies of, you know, how you handle your time in prison. So many people did it differently, but like, I know there's hard days in prison. Paul, what did you, how did you handle like a hard day in prison? What, what did you do to kind of keep yourself afloat? Well, I had, I had a difficult case manager. Uh, and, uh, he was, he was all about making your life difficult uh-huh. and he wanted to kind of really, you know, put his thumb down on you. And, uh, and that was hard. But I think the thing that was great about being in Leavenworth was my family was less than 20 miles away, about right. maybe 25, 25 miles away. So there was not a single, uh, visitation time on Saturday, Sunday, or Monday that I didn't either see my one of my members of my family, all of my members, or even friends and stuff that I know, right? And colleagues and so forth. And so those visits would catapult me through the rest of the week. Yeah. Now you know I'm I'm a I'm a Christian, so I got involved in the chapel a lot, right? And uh, uh, tried to serve as much as I could there. But I can't stress the. And, you know, just as you said at the beginning of the podcast, uh, I saw your family there as much as mine, and they came from St. Louis, right? <laughs> right. So that was amazing. And, I mean, it, it just would catapult you to the next. And I think that's such a great way of saying that, too, Paul, is that my time and your time really li- we lived week to week so that we could see them again, and that that fueled us up. To, and it's almost like you got to straddle the fence a little bit from the outside world to the prison world so that you you could stay connected enough that you weren't so far removed from what was going on in that world. You know, that, that was the thing I saw from a couple of the guys that I was friends with that didn't have that. And sure. they struggled with being so far away from that feeling of freedom or that feeling of, of a touch of of a family member or a friend. And, and, uh, man, I think that that makes, you know, I always have a tremendous amount of gratitude for the fact I didn't have to go through time like that because I think that time would, would take on such a different dimension. Um, if you were just doing the time on your own. Uh, I agree with that. It was, it helped that our families or our friends or whatever would, would visit. Uh, and it would, I use the word, it would catapult you Mm -hmm. through the rest week and so no matter how hard a day you had you were able to deal with it because you know hey i'm going to see my family again in a couple days yep Uh, so that's important and and you're right it was very sad that you and i witnessed those who either lost their families or their families refused to come see them or uh, because i i don't know about you but i knew people who never ever got a visit not once and I can't imagine how hard that is. Yeah, and I almost think if you took, if you looked at it, there was probably, when I first got there, I think there was like 400 and some odd people. It was really overcrowded, and they've had people on cots and everything, but it got less people as we went, went along. But maybe 30, 35 people got, got visits out of that whole population of, of uh, people. And yeah. that, it was a small, small percentage. Hmm. Small percentage. Well, 
I, I know I certainly counted a blessing that I got to see my family as much as I did. Yeah. So, Paul, you get into this thing. You've you've got um, how much time did you serve at Leavenworth? So you were there fourteen months in Duluth. So you you had uh, how many years left when you got to the Leavenworth? I think I had three and a half years left. My, okay. uh, you know, with your good time, I think my sentence ended after 60, 62 months. Yeah, I think because I think it's like eighty four percent of your time or yeah, something like that. Correct, federal. and yeah. uh, so. I was there about three and a half years mm-hmm. total and all. And, uh, you know, I, I always tell people I wouldn't like to go back, but it is a great learning experience. For yeah. you. you learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. Uh, you learn a lot about other people and what you do is come to have a great respect for, uh, the things that you need to change or decide or, you know, try and think about in your own way. I totally agree with that. I mean, I, I think when you – and I heard somebody say this uh, not too long ago, but your your world in prison is like being in black and white, and then when you get out, it turns back to color because, you know, it's just – you're getting through that time. You're, you're taking it a day at a time. You know, you can't look too far ahead because that's, that's claustrophobic and overwhelming, but if you can eat it a day and a week, you can get through it. And Sure, sure, very much so. And it's funny how inmates – they chop up their time, you know, well, I made it through another spring or I made right. <laughs> this is my last right. Christmas or whatever that is. It's yeah. how you adapt and, and survive. And, and the other thing, you know, probably um, that was different. Uh, you didn't have air conditioning at Leavenworth. No, that, that's true. You didn't. And it got a little warm sometimes, uh, but that was, you know, one of, you were asking earlier, and I'm sorry I forgot to bring this up, about how you got through certain days. Yeah. As you know, almost everyone walked. Yes. Everyone would walk. I mean, they were out there on the track or something like that walking. And, uh, For miles. Went, yeah, miles. <laughs> and I remember there was a time when I was doing uh, four to five miles a day. Yeah. Now I'd be lucky to do four or 500 feet. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you didn't think about it then no. because it was just something you did and it kept you uh, both uh, good health-wise and it also kept you focused to where you think we're, we're not thinking about how bad the day was. Yeah, and I think... But everybody, was, well, everybody I knew was. Oh, yeah, and it, it, it felt so much better to be outside of that building than to be inside that building. It, that building sure. to me was so claustrophobic because, I mean, there wasn't much in that building. You had your... No. Your A block, your B block, your C block, your D block, and you had that cafeteria in the middle, and you had the, the uh, gymnasium on one side, the commissary on the other. Right. That was it. That was That's it. it. That's the whole camp. Yeah, a little rundown schoolhouse. Yeah. So tell me, Paul. So you're you're getting close to the door. Six months to the door, being free. What did you start thinking? What did, what's going on in your mind? Well, uh, when, let me. As I said earlier, I had a real difficult uh, case manager, and of course, he was going to do all he could to keep me there. And if you recall, we were going through a time whenever uh, they had closed a number of halfway houses. Mm-hmm. So the way they remedied that was they were just extending a lot of the uh, people's uh, the time. Yeah, yeah. And I was very, very concerned because I had gotten a date of February twenty eighth, twenty eighteen, and I was so looking forward to it. And about December. Uh, first of December, my case manager called me and says, well, you've now become a, a victim of 
of the uh, closed halfway houses. We can't send you to a halfway house until May. Mm. I just, you know, it just mm. took all the wind out of me. I was so devastated. And I, I said, well, can, you know, is there some way to, I said, I, I live here in Kansas City. Can I just do home confinement? We don't do home confinement here. Confinement. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just devastated. So my family, my daughter and my wife happened to visit me that weekend and they were living about it, you mm-hmm. know, because they were so looking for me to come home. And I said, I, it's nothing I can do that, you know, this, this is the federal bureau of prisons and the rules they make are, are incontrovertible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but anyway, a strange story. They, they got very angry about this. And so they both, of them, my daughter lives in Hawaii and, uh, my wife here in Kansas city, they began con- contacting or calling the, uh, federal bureau of prisons regional office every single day. Wow. And they were pushing to do this and to do that. And, uh, I mean, every day they would do two or three calls, you know, and so forth like that. And Good I guess, for them. Good for them. I guess they, the regional office finally got tired of them calling. And so one day my, my daughter called and, and, uh, the, we got a hold of the regional director and she said, well, I've been looking at your father's file here and he's, he's pretty boring. He doesn't really, <laughs> he's, he's a boring prisoner. <laughs> yeah. And she said, well, no, she says, well, we have a new program, uh, or it's not a new program, but it's a program that exists that he would fit under. And, uh, Brent, I'm sorry, I can't think of the name of it now, but it basically uh, meant that was you were such a, uh, a high level, uh, person of not getting in trouble mm-hmm. that they were going to, uh, just, uh, just bypass anything and send you straight home. And I, she said, I think he'll qualify for that. Wow. And, uh, so anyway, uh, one thing led to another and they said, we're going to let you out on the 28th and you, your wife can pick you up at 9 a.m. and you just go straight on home. So I didn't go to a halfway house. Uh, and it was really quite nice because, uh, I don't know, you know, I understand I haven't been to halfway house, but I understand sometimes they can be rather depressing too. Oh gosh. The, the one that was in uh, St. Louis, which they've now closed down here this last year. Uh, I, I think it was worse than anything that was 11 worth, just the filth. Yeah, and I, the that's what I've been told. And, yeah. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was very fortunate. I could not, uh, cannot tell you how happy I was. And when I went in to see the, uh, I can't imagine Patriot, Paul. Cause I mean, you thought yeah. you were going to do all this extra time and all of a oh, sudden well, I just I say, here it, you are. Yeah. Well, the case manager, when I went in, I thought, Oh, he's going to be very angry. Cause he won't see me stay another. Yeah. He said, well, he said, uh, yeah, you're on this blah, 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 blah program. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, uh, you're very lucky. You're only the second person I've seen in, in 18 years. Get on that program. And I said, well, I'm glad I, I'm glad I won. <laughs> and, and he didn't have anything to do with it. There's nothing he could do about it, right? He yeah. was pretty well stuck with it. And yeah. so that's how it went. To me, it was a very uplifting time because I went through, I thought, defeat. Yeah. And then I got picked up again to make you feel like, hey, there is, you know, there is some justice here. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and the it, fact it, that your family it, was able to make something yeah, move they, in that system is almost unreal. I'm sure the regional office was very tired of hearing <laughs> warm down <laughs> yeah so you get out who who's there to get you when you get out my wife picked me up my youngest son who at that time uh was uh, a junior at the university of oklahoma yeah. drove up the night before he was there my other son paul jr who's a captain in the united states army uh was on base but he was uh facetiming okay now, i don't know if you remember uh, Brent, but whenever I went in, 
FaceTime didn't exist, or it didn't exist the way it is then. No. And then my, my daughter was FaceTiming from yeah. Hawaii. Yeah. So when I got in the car and they showed me these two phones, and I said, because I thought they had just recorded that the exactly. night before. I realized it was real. It's live. <laughs> yeah, so I had to understand that, oh, they're talking. You can talk to them right now. I said, I had no idea you could do that. So they, they picked me up. We drove straight home. Uh, it was unlike anything. And I don't know if you had this situation, but driving home, it seemed the car was going so fast. Isn't that funny how that uh, happens? Yeah. <laughs> it feels like everything's moving uh, so fast. Everything is moving so fast, you know, and I thought, wow, we're going so fast, and they were going maybe 55 or 60. <laughs> right. But uh, I thought that was an interesting thing, and I think it's because we've been put away so long. And we, it's we not have used to, to moving that fast. Yeah, a regimented way we do things. Yeah. Way it I had the same uh, same phenomenon. Really strange. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this is really strange, but it, it was a very happy day. Yes. So, Paul, tell me what what now? What's what's the what's the what's the world going on now in Paul's world? I'm retired now. Uh, I, I play a lot of golf, but one of the things that I did, I don't know if you heard about it, but I was very concerned uh, before I left prison about inmates I would meet, and they would have absolutely no uh, contact. Just like we said, they'd have no family, no friends. Uh, they had no, no way to go to the commissary and get just basic needs. As you know, everything costs. You, use, you go to do email, it costs. You do a phone, it costs, everything. And I was very concerned about that. So when I, when I was released, my wife and I started a ministry. Uh, we call it, or it's called Heartfield Mission. Mm-hmm. And if any of your people want to check it out, it's www.heartfieldmissions.com. And uh, what we do is we support financially inmates who are struggling inside the uh, prison system or inmates who have gotten out or trying to get started. Because as you know, some people walk out and they have nothing, right. nothing to go to. And uh, we raise money to uh, give to these individuals. We try and pick those that we feel like are struggling because some people, as you know, in prison make more money than <laughs> they get prison <laughs> rich. Yeah. That's the most do outside of prison. Right. And, uh, so we've been in that uh, ministry now for, since I've gotten out, uh, we tell people who donate to us, we are a uh, nonprofit. We tell people who donate to us that 100% of your donation goes to help an inmate or an inmate's family. We don't take anything for salary or, or expenses or anything like that. And, uh, so that's been kind of something that we've worked on since I've been free. Cause when you're retired, you have the time to do it. And, uh, in fact, I just got a call from, um, I see just from an inmate who's released now that, uh, we helped financially and we're trying to help him get his car going so he can now get to his job. And, uh, that's kind of what we've been doing here. I, I love do. it, Paul. I just, I just love that. I mean, because that is something that affects somebody immediately and, and, by you being an ex-inmate, you know how important that is. And the fact that you're not only doing it while they're in prison, but helping them when they're out of prison, because like you said, there's some guys that get out and they have nothing. And then they have to find a job. They have to find a place to live. And all those things are tough, tough interviews, tough places. You know, there's, there's boxes you have to check. And if you check the box, they say, no, then you're homeless or you don't have a job. So, I just think that's fantastic. You're doing that. I commend well, you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's uh, it's a passion that my wife and I have. Uh, uh, a, a friend of both mine and yours, when he got out, he served like 15 years almost. 
uh, throwing a drug charge. And he, I called him. I said, I'm so, so happy you're out and everything. And he said, well, says, I, I got these job interviews, but I don't have, I don't have any clothes to wear mm-hmm. and so forth like that. So we, we sent him up some, uh, some cash to get him some, a uh, new set of clothes and so forth. And he had the job the next time, uh, that I talked to him. So, you know, it's, it's helping these people because like we said at the beginning of the podcast, there are so many who just want to get back in society and rebuild, yep. uh, their life. And, uh, it's hard because, uh, I, I'm one inmate that I know is, is flying here to Kansas City this coming weekend. And I hadn't seen him in a long time, but he runs a Bible study that I go to on Friday mornings at 630 in the morning for inmates all around the country. So you see people from every everywhere you can imagine. But he's coming here. And the reason I bring him up is I still remember the day when I was in Duluth and uh, I went to probably my second visitation. My wife had come down and his wife had come down, too. And his wife went to him and told him, says, well, I want you to enjoy this visit with your two children because it's the last time you're going to see them. I believe in you and you'll never see them again. Mm. And I I thought at the time how I could have handled that. I I wouldn't have been able to, but I thought he handled it so bravely. And, uh, you know, his two little children, one must have been five, the other maybe seven. They were just crying away when they left and he, he got down to their level and he said, don't worry, daddy will be here. And, I've just been so impressed with him and everything like that. So they're inmates like that. Mm-hmm. And we try to find them out. It's hard. Uh, we do some of the inmates both in federal and in the state prisons. And we try and locate uh, the ones who are in need and try and help them uh, financially if we can. Paul, it's just a big, big deal. I mean, and, and the thing that is, is so big about that is, is the one thing you don't ever want to take away from somebody is hope. And by doing something that you're doing, you're, you're giving these people hope. And that's got to fill you up. Well, it, it's, it's very, I don't know if I'd say gratifying, but it's uplifting. Yeah. Uh, because even when I was, you know, we didn't have a lot of money when I went away. Like I said, we stopped being a two-income family and became a one-income family. Right. And uh, I was worried if my wife would be able to survive financially. Yeah. You know, the, the house, all these things, automobiles. And even even myself, I would see things pop up on my uh, commissary list, money, uh, that I didn't know about, that some somebody had sent. And I was so thankful. And that's the reason I... Toward the end, I began to meet people who were either by themselves or had lost their family or something, and they were struggling, trying just to get basic needs, uh, you know, and uh, it's hard for them. Like I have one guy uh, who who's, writes me incredible, beautiful letters, and uh, he's serving three life sentences mm. in a state prison in Texas, mm. and we support him financially because he, he has no family. He just has his mom, and his mom's uh, elderly and can't can't give him anything. And he writes such blue, glowing letters where he so he says he's so thankful that there's someone like us out there that would help him. Uh, even though you know he says I, I I regret what put me in here. I don't uh, I don't know any way to change it. I'm just going to serve my time and be happy. And uh, but I will. I just am so thankful that you that you uh, take me as a person to support. I love that. I just, I think it's fantastic. Uh, Paul, tell me, uh, tell me about your book for such, for such a time as this. What, what's this book about? Well, people who want to get this. This is a, it's kind of a book about my time 
uh, when serving in the prison system, uh, believe it or not, you're in here. You won't know that, <laughs> but you might if you read it. You might just you might say, "Hey, I remember when that yeah, happened." I recognize that guy. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it, I I I had bad days whenever I just was felt like a caged animal and said, "I got to get out of here. I can't take this anymore." Mm-hmm. And my wife sent me. Uh, she'd always send me uplifting emails to try and help me get out of it. And and, uh, and she sent me one one day, and she says, "You." You've done, it was shortly after the Easter program that you talked about. Yeah. She said, you've, you've done so wonderfully trying to pull that together, and you've done these things. Don't give up. It's, you can make it through this. And I was saying, no, I can't, no, I can't. And she quoted a, a verse from the Bible, and it's from a, a book called Esther, Esther chapter 4, verse 13. And what's happening is Esther is the queen of the Persian Empire. And one of the the shaman there have decided that they've hatched a plan to where they're going to uh, kill and destroy the entire Jewish nation. They were captured that time. They were going to destroy the, you know, they, the whole Jewish nation. Esther is Jewish. Nobody knew that time, but she was Jewish. And so her uncle come to her and said, you've got to do something about this. You're the queen. And she says, I can't. Because as queen, if I approach the king without him summoning me, he could have me beheaded. And uh, his, her uncle said, well, if you don't do something, we will receive help from afar, meaning God. Mm-hmm. And then he says one last thing. He says, and who knows but that you should come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mm-hmm. And I always think that applies to our life. Who knows that we might not be put in prison at those dates, at those times, for such a time as this, that we would talk to someone, help to someone, or lead someone in some way to help them. And so uh, it, it takes it takes through the chapters of basically what I've discussed with you today of, uh, you know, how I got into that, this mess, <laughs> uh, how I got to the prisons, how I dealt with it. Some of the things that we talked about, I talk about some of the people, I don't use names of course, but, uh, and how I was very, uh, moved by some of the people and how they affected my life. I mean, what I discovered was, uh, there were, there were really nice people in prison. You know, there right. were not, there were some that were difficult, but they were really as there is on the outside. <laughs> yeah, 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 and so forth. So it's a book about my time, but it, it's try. It's basically uh, spiritually uh, devised uh, from a Christian standpoint, and I think it's something that both uh, the Christian person would would enjoy or the non-Christian because it basically tells here's what happened, mm-hmm. here's how I got here, here's what God did for me. And here's how I got out of to, to this point. I like it. Nuggets of wisdom of your experience. Uh, Paul, where do you get that book? Well, we, uh, it is on Amazon. Uh, it's, I hear that sometimes it's hard to purchase on Amazon. I don't know why, but you know, that way it is. And I always tell people, if you want to get a copy of it, you can contact me at that, at that webpage, www.heartfieldmissions.com. Okay. And uh, my daughter runs the uh, public relations, so she sends them out right away. Perfect. And uh, we'd be glad to send them out to somebody. Uh, we always we started out when we first got all of them. We sold them for fifteen dollars a copy and used that to open up our ministry to help people. Now I just say I'll give you one, and if you want to send something to help us, we'd appreciate it. But you're not required to. Can't wait to read it. It's on its I way. It's supposed to be here tomorrow, I think. It should be there tomorrow. Yeah. So, Paul, such you're such a good guy and, and doing good things 
for people. Um, anything you'd like to impart to the to the audience here on on your life and what's happened and. Well, I think I think that's a hard thing sometimes, uh, you know, because I think people sometimes, and I know I was this way before I got in trouble. Whenever I hear someone, whenever I heard someone was getting in trouble, my first thought would be lock them up. They need to be locked up to commit a crime. Get them out of here. Mm-hmm. You know, get them off the streets. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when I uh, was incarcerated, and I began to meet so many different people, yourself. Uh, uh, I can just name them, you know, so many different people. They had different personalities, but they were in there for different things. I would say that I would impart that we should never uh, continue to judge someone for a mistake they made because we all make mistakes. Yeah. There's nobody out here who hasn't made a mistake. You know, you and I, we may be free right now, but we are felons forever. Yep. That'll never change. We can never, yeah. yeah, we can never own a gun. You know, in the early or late 1800s, if you got sentenced to prison and you went and served your term, your slate was clean. You walked out, you were a new man. Right. But that's not the case. Now, I will say there's great strides that have been made in prison reform, but it still needs to go a lot farther. So if I were to impart something to your audience, I, I would say this. Give people another chance. Give them a chance, and I think you will see that many of them are not only sorry for their mistake, but want to do everything in their power to make up for that mistake. I, I know I do. Oh, I, and, I so second that, Paul. Such a good statement because so many people are looking for second chances and they're trying to keep the hope alive and they're looking for opportunities and hoping that somebody will grab them and give them that opportunity to make another life for themselves. So true. Yeah. So true. Paul, just great stuff. I, I so appreciate you being on the show today. Um, and giving us your words of wisdom on, and I love what you're doing with your mission. That That is uh, right on to what should be going on because it's going to make an impact. And it's uh, proud of that, Paul. That's that's really fantastic. Fantastic. Folks, um, for those who, uh, speaking of books, so we've got two books here today. For Such a Time as This, Paul Hartfield, and you've got Brent Cassidy, Nightmare Success. Um Get, get them on Amazon. Uh, get mine also on Barnes & Noble. Uh, for those, we love the likes and subscribing. Leave a review if you got time. Those are fantastic. I love those. Um, thank you, everybody, for being here today. Paul, thank you so much, man. My pleasure. Thank you, Brent. Nightmare success in and out.